If you have a Bible, go with me to Luke chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, those Bibles provided for you that Mark uh, pointed out earlier were on page 8, 860 in those Bibles, 860, Gospel of Luke chapter 4. Well, I'm not sure if you've noticed it or not, but there's a bit of unrest going on in our country. I'm sure that if you've watched the news or have been on social media or basically been outside of your house any time in the past few weeks and months, you'll know that our, there's a bit of unrest going on in the hearts of many. Our country is what you might call a bit anxious right now. People, uh, and our, people are all over the spectrum on how they're feeling the, the anxiety. There's, there are people who are having real feelings of fear right now. There's some who are hopeful. There's some who are angry. We could go through and list all of the different feelings that people are having, but as you, as you put all the, those together, it, it can get a little bit crazy sometimes. And it feels like that sometimes, I suspect, if you've been paying attention. And, and I would say that there's good reasons for people to be feeling a bit of the angst that we, that we are. There are real issues that are going on in the lives of everyone around us that affect both our country and countries abroad. These are real issues that affect real people, and there really are lives at stake, and there really is important things to discuss. And I think because, because we are living in it right now, for many of us, this can feel like it's never been like this before. And that can even intensify the feelings of anxiety, unrest, and, and fear that we have. But I just want to point out to us that while it is very true that what's happening right now matters, this isn't all that different than really the rest of human history. In a lot of different ways, this kind of stuff, and there's, it ebbs and flows, and there's highs and lows, and there's peaks and valleys, yes, but... This is what has marked humanity since the fall. It's, it's, this has been what's going on. John read from, from Isaiah chapter 61, some 700 years before Jesus, and that day felt like this day. I mean, the culture was collapsing, and people were fearful, and they thought, had God forgotten us, and what is going to happen? And our enemy seems so big, and it's daunting. Fast forward 700 years later to Jesus' day when he's on the scene and the section of Scripture we'll be studying this morning and you've got Rome ruling the world and there's never been anybody like Rome. So oppressive and tyrannical and abusive and everybody's scared and there's fear and fast forward 2,017 years and it's our day and we feel it the same. And the reason I want to point that out is because, not to minimize what's going on now, but to put it in perspective. Because what we need in our day is the same thing that humanity has needed in every other age and any other age that ever will be. What we need is we need an invasion from heaven. We need a Savior King to come and to rescue us and to establish God's rule on earth that we might know true authority, 
good authority and true peace and true hope that no matter what comes, it cannot be shaken. This is what God's kingdom is all about. And this is what Jesus came to do. He came to establish the kingdom of God. And this is what we're going to be considering in our time together in the Gospel of Luke this morning. Now to catch us up to where we are in the story, the first two uh, chapters of of Luke uh, were Jesus' early years. We saw prophecies uh, coming to pass and coming to fruition where John the Baptist, the forerunner, was born and Jesus was born. Then we saw uh, chapters 3 and 4, Jesus' divine endorsement that the, he gets, he's, uh, withstands the temptation of the devil. He's baptized. He's shown to indeed be the Son of God. And now in chapter 4, 14, all the way through chapter 9, verse 50, we move into the next section, the, the third section of the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to see Jesus' uh, ministry, which is already kicked off, but in, in, a, in a very real sense, his public ministry is, is, is coming uh, in, into focus for us. And um, particularly his ministry here in the area of, of Galilee. And we're going to see that Jesus' ministry is marked by a lot of things, but particularly two things, and they both show up in our text here this morning. And that is his preaching and his performing of miracles. We're going to see him declaring authoritative things, and then we're going to see him working authoritative miracles. All evidences of the kingdom of God that he is ushering in. Now, though we're picking up here in 414, and this is um, Jesus' ministry in Galilee, just, just so you know, there's been an earlier bit of his ministry that we haven't seen that Luke doesn't record for us. So you can just make a note that John chapter 1, verse 19, all the way through 432 is Jesus' Judean ministry that happened before this scene. So if you want to read that later, you can kind of get some more chronology and things that happened uh, before that. That's where Jesus meets his disciples, turns water into wine, cleanses a temple, um, meets a Samaritan woman there at the well. All of that goes on before this. And then Jesus moves here into this, this region of, of Galilee, which is where we pick up Luke's recording of Jesus' ministry. And as we look at chapter 4, verses 14 down through 44 this morning, we're going to see two big sections. The first is that Jesus proclaims the message of his kingdom. Jesus proclaims the message of his kingdom, verses 14 down through 32. And then secondly, that Jesus proves his authority as king. Jesus proves his authority as king, and that's verse 34 down through through 44. And um, if you want to have this big idea kind of hanging over us as we work through this text, I think it'll be helpful for us. This is the big idea, that that Jesus is the promised Messiah King who has come to exercise the authority of God's kingdom on earth. Jesus is the promised Messiah King who has come to exercise the authority of God's kingdom on earth. And as we think about God's kingdom, we need to think about it as an already, not yet sense. There's going to be an already sense in which we experience the kingdom of God now. And there's going to be a not yet sense in which one day when Jesus returns and finishes everything off, that song we sang earlier about um, justified, sanctified, glorified. So in this age, we know justification and sanctification. Well, in that, that final age, we'll know glorification. It'll all be finished. 
So both of those things we're going to see are showing up throughout this text and really the rest of, of our, the gospel of Luke here. All right, so let's, let's check out point one here. Jesus proclaims the message of his, his kingdom. And this is what we will find, that Jesus is going to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. The good news, the Messiah has come, and he has come not just to flip some tables in the temple, but he is going to flip systems of oppression and injustice and evil. And he is going to usher in a reign of righteousness that the world and human history in every age has longed for. Let's pick it up here in verse 14. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues. So when you hear synagogue, think place of worship. There were no sacrifices there, so it was not the temple. Uh, but there would be teaching and there would be prayer there, much like what's happening here this morning. Okay. So that's your synagogues. He taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. This is his general reception. Verse 16. He came to Nazareth. Now, where's Nazareth? What's that? How's that relate to Jesus? Hometown. Yes, this is hometown. He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. So the way that synagogues would work is you would have different readings from different portions of the, the Scripture. You'd have the Torah, Genesis through uh, Deuteronomy. You have a reading there. Then you have a reading from, from the prophets. And oftentimes, the synagogue would, be, would, would open up the floor, as it were, to respected teachers. Now, Jesus was becoming increasingly popular, and he was also well-known because he had been going to this synagogue since he was a youngin'. And we've seen what Jesus, in, back in chapter 2, what Jesus does when he's in the synagogue. He's always asking questions. So, you know, little old ladies are like, oh, he's knew he had it in him. You know, I mean, like, they're, they're aware that there's something special about this Jesus guy. Well, Jesus comes back now, and this is his first time in this synagogue after, being, uh, after having received the Holy Spirit and beginning his public ministry officially, as it were. Also, you'll notice here that he, he stood up to read. So this is the way that they used to do it in the synagogue. The pastor, or well, the teacher would get up, the rabbi would get up to read, and then he would sit down. Okay, well, I can't do that. I'd keep, it just wouldn't work for me. Anyway, so he's going to read this. Now watch, he's given the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, verse 17. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And this is Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And as we've already mentioned, this text comes from a day of distress in Isaiah's day, and it was read in a day of distress in Israel's day. And this is a prophecy of Messiah. The, the one who would come, the one who would be filled with the Holy Spirit, the one who would be anointed or set apart by God to proclaim good news to the poor, he says here. 
You see, through Isaiah, God promised the Messiah would come and he would, he would intervene. Messiah would step on the scene and say, it's enough. En- enough of this. He is going to come and stand up for the destitute. For those who have been trampled upon. For those who have been passed over by people with fat pockets. Who've been under the, the thumb of systems and injustices. Who have been taken advantage of by the haves while they are the have-nots. He says Messiah has come for them. Because historically the poor are oppressed by those who are not poor. This is historically what happens. Messiah comes for them. See, the world's forgotten about him, but heaven has not. Listen to this from 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 8. He raises up the poor from the dust, speaking of the Lord. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. God owns it all, and he sees all people, including those that everybody else looks over and tramples upon. He sees them, and he cares about them, and Messiah is promised to come and to rescue them. He comes for the poor. Now this, if you've been reading through Luke, you know is a ginormous, if that's a word, ginormous theme throughout Luke. Luke highlights... Jesus' care for the poor in chapter 1, 4, 6, 7, 14, 16, 19, 21, and all the other ones that I missed. It's just everywhere through the Gospel of Luke. This is a huge emphasis. And the reason is because it's all over the Old Testament. All the prophets are talking about this. Now, I want to make an important clarification here. This is not a statement of hope for all poor. This is, this is not a statement of hope for all people who are poor. Because poverty in and of itself doesn't commend someone to God. Right? You can be poor and unbelieving. But, but for the poor who look to the Lord in faith, who are also what you might call poor in spirit, as Jesus speaks of in the Sermon on the Mount, they have help. Now, All must be poor in spirit, realizing that they are bankrupt morally before God in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. That is certainly true. But for the poor here who are also poor in spirit, they have help. That that means Lazarus. You remember him? Not dead guy Lazarus, but poor guy Lazarus. The one who is passed by every single day by the rich man. We see Jesus gives a section of scripture to him later on in the gospel of Luke. He was commended for his, his faith. You had the the widow uh, uh, of Zarephath who tended to Elijah. Though she had nothing, heaven smiled upon her for her faith. You had the the widow who gave the might. And Jesus said, stop, y'all. You see her? She, she. She has faith. Job, who once had so much but then lost it all, still walked by faith, though frailly. You read through the New Testament, you have New Testament churches giving out of their poverty, not the ones who, who had the mega churches and the, the big bank account, but rather you've got these giving out of their poverty who are commended by God. You had Ruth and Naomi who were, were in the midst of a famine and were both widows and were sorrowful. You had the woman uh, in the Gospel of Luke with the issue of blood who had spent all she had on doctors and her last hope 
was Jesus. All of these are poor, but also poor in, in spirit. Messiah comes for them. Now, this distinction is important to understand the uniqueness of God's kingdom because Messiah will be working on two levels all the time. He comes to address real physical issues, but he also comes to address real spiritual issues. There's going to be physical liberation, but there's also going to be spiritual liberation. He comes to proclaim and provide liberty to captives and to the oppressed, our text says here. Those suffering under unjust governments and oppressive systems and who are ensnared in slavery. But his work also includes, and we might even say supremely includes, the ultimate liberation from Satan's rule, from enslavement to sin, from oppression of death. Messiah comes to change the whole system. Both things you can see and things you can't see, but are just as real. Messiah comes to fix the whole thing. The whole thing. He comes to give sight to the blind, it says here. He will heal physical brokenness in people's bodies. But there is also a day coming. That means that there's a day coming when the blind will see. Like they'll see. When those who ache will ache no more. When those who are confined to a bed or to a chair, that they will rise up and they will dance. God will fix that stuff. I think it's important for us to just note that Jesus actually is going to fix those things too. Because in our, I don't know how you would characterize yourself, but at least in the circles of Christianity that I think we're in, we tend to overemphasize the spiritual and minimize the physical. And I think that can be dangerous because God says it all matters. It it all matters. When he's done at the end, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth where there's zero trace of the curse, whether physical or spiritual, forevermore. It will all be fixed. Messiah is going to come to do that. But he also comes to give spiritual sight. Light in darkness so it will give life to people who can then rise and serve him. This prophet Isaiah here says in verse 19, this is the year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's favor. Maybe an allusion to to, to the year of Jubilee, a time on Israel's calendar when all debts were canceled and people celebrated the mercy of God. That's certainly possible. But it's also certainly true that there's a a year, a new age that is ushered in through Messiah. That when Jesus comes, something changes. There are some physical effects that we see in this life now that one day will fully and finally be rectified in that last day. But there are spiritual realities that begin right now that we who are in Christ know and rejoice in. That's why even though right now in our day there's all kinds of madness going on and we feel that and we, can, we, we sense it and it matters and we can cry and we can hope and we can pray and we feel it, for the Christian, the Christian is not owned by it though. The Christian is not owned by it. They're not enslaved to it because they have been liberated 
to be a part of the kingdom of God. Where they know, we know that there is a king who's righteous, who rules, and will always do what is good, and that you cannot stop him. And he always knows what is right. And his rule is forevermore. That's why the Christian, that's why we can sit in here right now, and we're not going to spend 45 minutes talking about policies and all that kind of stuff. Not because it's not important, but because it's not ultimate. And you get enough of that throughout our day. But the people of God, I just want to encourage you, when you get together, it will be easy for many of you to default to this, the other kinds of conversations. They're okay. But how much more do we need to speak to one another about the kingdom of God? The year of the Lord's favor. That under Messiah's rule, that there is no need to fear, ultimately. That gives hope in the midst of days of darkness. Well, verse 20. So Jesus reads that from Isaiah 61, and then this. Verse 20. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. What's he going to say about it? And then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That is the ultimate mic drop. I just did that. (laughs) I'm him, is what he says. Isaiah's talking about me. Isaiah was hoping for me, he says. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Micah, Habakkuk, Haggai, all of them. They were looking to me. That text about Messiah, about a day of the Lord's favor, a day of righteous rule, a day where the oppressed will know freedom, a day where the poor will be rich beyond measure because they will have the kingdom of God as their inheritance. That's happening right now, he says. That's gutsy. Jesus is, he is the promises of God. What are the promises of God? Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 would say it this way. In Christ, all of God's promises are yes and amen. How does God answer every single one of the promises He's ever made to His people? By sending Jesus. He's given spoken word and written word and it's been kept and people have held it while they go off to captivity and back again while they have been oppressed for years and decades and centuries. They've held on to it and then Jesus comes and he says, I'm him. Jesus is the amen of all of God's promises. Now what kind of response does Jesus get to this? Verse 22, and all spoke well of him. And they marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Look down at verse 32, and they they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. They're like, wow, 
this Jesus guy is amazing. He doesn't just quote a bunch of old rabbis. He's not, he didn't get on sermon.com before he came in here. He's got real stuff. Like he's alive. He knows God. There's something about him that when he speaks, you can feel it means something. Now for a lot of ministers, this would have been about enough. This would have been a good day. He'd have been like, hey, listen, I'll be out in the, I'll be out in the foyer. You can, you can get a copy of my latest book. Right? He added some followers on social media. He, uh, people are applauding. Right? You know, his agent is lining up speaking gigs. Jesus' ministry is trending up. His platform's increasing here. What you got to know about Jesus, though, is he don't want any of that. Because he didn't come to just get a crowd. He came to build a kingdom. And entering his kingdom, there's got to be some changing in people's hearts. So what Jesus is going to do is he's going he's to he's take the crosshairs of his word and he's going to move it now all the more directly at the hearts of everybody who's in there. And he is going to, to go after them. So rather than having an altar call and saying what kind of response we're going to get, he's going to say, actually, I'm not, I'm not done with you yet. And he, he says what he knows is deep down in their heart. So everybody's like, oh, Jesus is awesome, Jesus is awesome, don't you love some Jesus? It's your Jesus t-shirt. Well, verse 23, he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. Oh, you think you're something, huh? Why don't you take care of yourself, Jesus? Then he goes on to say, what, what you've heard, what we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Now what Jesus had done in, in, in Capernaum was miracles. You see, Jesus knows that even though they're in awe of him, most of them are not going to end up accepting, accepting him. Because they don't want him for who he really is. They like what they've heard so far about Messiah is going to come and he's going to make everything right. That's good. But Messiah is about to point out that everything that's wrong is not just around you, but it's in you. And the kingdom of God, before it comes in to rule over you, he's going to come and he's going to rule in you. And that's uncomfortable. They wanted to do some miracles to prove it, right? They said, is this not Joseph's son? What you did at Capernaum, you going to do some of that down here? Prove you're the Messiah. Show us some of your tricks. Come on, Jesus. Well, verse 24, he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Now, the reason he says that is because Israel has a history of rejecting God's messengers of mercy to them. The prophet's hometown should be Israel. So when a prophet comes and proclaims the good news that God has for them, including pointing out their sins so they can repent, what the hometown should do is say, yes, give us some more. We need to repent. We need to get ready. We need to be pleasing in God's sight. But that's not the reception that Israel has for its prophets. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who stones the prophets. Well, it's going to be no different with Jesus. 
They like the idea of Messiah, but they're not so sure Jesus is really him. So what Jesus is going to do is he's going to give them a little history lesson. And he's going to quote two stories, one from 1 Kings and one from 2 Kings. Look at verse 25. But in truth, I tell you, there are many, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was widow. Jesus says, you'll remember the days of Elijah, don't you? Days of great apostasy, days of great idolatry. Well, when God sent his messenger of mercy, do you remember who he sent him to? He tried to send him to Israel, but Israel didn't want him. So God sent him to a Gentile, to a Phoenician, Gentile, pagan, unclean person. Then he gives a second example, verse 27. There were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Elisha's day was just like Elijah's day. Everybody's off with their idols, and when a prophet comes and calls them out, they say, don't speak that around here. Get that, get that conviction type sermon out of here. I don't want any of that. So he said, fine, we're going to send you, we're going to send mercy somewhere else then. So you send it to Syria. This Naaman was, was the commander of the army there. Syria was the oppressor of Israel in those days, but God chose to send mercy out to the enemy and show mercy to the Gentile. Now watch what happens. Verse 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and they drove him out of town and they brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Well, that escalated quickly. Rather than be humbled... They became hostile. Rather than repent, they rioted. Rather than confess that Jesus is indeed the Christ, and they will bow a knee, and they'll do whatever he says, they want to toss him off a cliff. Now, what in the world did Jesus say that made them so angry that they went from praising him to now wanting to kill him? I mean, he just told them a couple Bible stories. What, what would it be that would change their posture from one of amazement to one of animosity? Well, you see, it's, it's what's in those stories that rub them so wrong. Because in those stories, he points out two truths that don't sit well with these people. The first is this. If mercy isn't Received as offered, it will be removed. If mercy is not received as offered, it will be removed. You see, these stories that Jesus recounts are from a time in Israel's history that were marked by rebellion and idolatry. And God sent wave after wave of kindness, 
yet they rejected him, so he removed mercy from them. You see, this is really important. It is, it is not just enough to marvel at a message about Jesus. To be like, oh, that sounds good. Oh, that might be true. Or you know what? I think that is true. You see, gospel messages are intended to be obeyed, not just adored. When this word goes out, it's meant to, to create a response in you and in me. I think it's important to note here just how dangerous it is to walk away from moments of mercy that God extends to you. So we see it on a national level here with these issues with Elijah and Elisha's day, but but I just want to also caution us. This is why the, the book of Hebrews says that if you hear his voice today, do not harden your heart. So when you sense God's prodding to pray, don't be like, yeah, it's a good idea, I'll pray later. That means you stop in whatever way you can. If you're driving, you can pray out loud with your eyes open, whatever it looks like. But like, if God's prodding you, don't push him off. If, if there's conviction that comes from anything from this message that you hear today or any other day that you're here or any other gospel preaching church, if conviction comes on you to be like, oh yeah, I feel bad about that. That's not enough. He wants a response of faith. See, the the gospel of of, of Matthew chapter 13 tells us that Jesus didn't do many miracles in this place because of their unbelief. He withheld testifying miracles because they didn't want him coming in and pointing out areas that they needed to change. And Jesus knew that about them. They don't want to get rid of their sin. So, they'll just want to get rid of Jesus. It's the first thing you need to notice, that if mercy isn't received as offered, it will be removed. And the second thing, and this is really what made him mad, if Israel does not receive mercy from God, he will extend it to people outside of Israel. If Israel does not receive mercy from God, he will extend it to people outside of Israel. This is what sent them over the edge and what made them want to put him over the edge. They hated to even hear the notion that God might show some kind of mercy to non-Jews that would even look like the kind of mercy that he had offered to them. A a Gentile widow? A a commander of the enemy army? Are you saying outsiders going to get treated like us? And and as, as Jesus speaks about grace going to the Gentiles, hearts are beginning to get revealed here among those in the synagogue. And what we discover is that You've got a synagogue full of Jonas. You remember the prophet Jonah? Who God visited him and said, Go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim a message that judgment's coming. And rather than him saying, Oh, praise God for his mercy. Get me the first donkey to Nineveh. Let's go. Because I can't wait to tell Nineveh about all the mercies that we know. 
What's Jonah do? Mm-mm. Ain't gonna do that. We're gonna Joppa, get a boat, we're gonna go out in the water as far away the other way from Nineveh is what we're gonna do. Well, God gets him through a fish up on land, rinse and repeat. We're going back, we're going to Nineveh. Like, you, it's gonna go. It'd either be easy or hard, it's gonna happen, okay? So just remember that it's gonna happen to so just trust him. Okay, anyway go. They goes. He goes in. All right, y'all gonna get judged. And then what's he do? Goes up on the hill and he sits down and he waits for Sodom and Gomorrah part two. He's sitting up on the hill and he's, he's waiting for God to rain down fire on these pagans. Now, Nineveh was, it was a wicked city filled with wicked people. I mean, think ISIS-type wickedness. So it was hard for him. There were real things that were going on there. But God, God loves sinners of all sorts. And his mercy is extended, believe it or not, to people who are not just like you and me. Is it, is it possible for people who profess to love God and can even be amazed with Jesus to yet have deep in their heart prejudice that would make them to become angry at the thought of certain people being given the kind of grace that they have received? I spoke with a pastor on, on Friday. We're having a conversation. He's not around here, but... Um, he told me they had a conversation with a person in the, in the, in the church that he pastors because um, he'd, been, he'd been talking about how they need to, to be reaching out to other people in the community and that basically his church is the one percenters. It's all the, the rich people and the haves. And um, he, he mentioned, you know, hey, maybe, maybe you can bring, you know, some of the, the people who work for you. And um, he said, whoa, whoa, now, pastor, listen. He said, we need to get people in the church but we need to get the right kind of people. We need to focus our ministry on people who are like us, who look like us, and think like us, and vote like us, and talk like us, and get mad about what we get mad about, and who march about what we want to march about. Is it possible for some of that to be in our hearts as well? Do you, ever, do you ever label people in such a way that if you're honest, you don't think they deserve mercy like you do? We all have prejudices. We've all got them. We can say we don't. We could pretend all day long everybody has biases and prejudices in their heart. You may not want them there, but when certain kinds of people, you think about them, certain things come to mind. It's there. It affects everybody. And I think if we're really honest, some of us, many of us, are probably a little uncomfortable with certain kinds of people being in the kingdom of God. So when you hear Iranian 
or Iraqi or an Afghani or a Syrian or a Russian or a Mexican or you hear Donald Trump or you hear Hillary Clinton or you hear Republicans white Republicans white evangelical Republicans Democrats Black Lives Matter KKK When you hear those groups, what does that do to you? What if God said he was going to give grace to them and bring them to repentance and bring them into his kingdom and you were going to sit next to them for all of eternity? I would hope in, in theory all of us would say yes. But I think in, in practice, if we're all honest, there are things in us right now that hinder us from really delighting in that and rejoicing in that and embracing that. You see, they hear about Gentiles getting blessed and they bristle. They don't like the idea that God would give grace to people like I think it's interesting to note here just how fickle the human heart is. I mean, did you notice that? I mean, it is... I was going to say some stuff that I'm just not going to say because I want to stay the pastor here. Um, but there are so many examples just of like things that you could say at the Republican convention and things you could say at the Democratic convention that people would just come unglued with that Jesus would applaud. And I'm not withholding because I'm, I'm scared of that kind of stuff. I just, I think that we need to be really careful to think and be real sure that we're not above any of that. Jesus makes everybody uncomfortable. He gets in all of our grills. Nobody's safe from the Messiah. He comes for us. Now, one minute they're in all of them, the next minute they want to kill him which is a foreshadowing, by the way, of Stephen. You remember Acts chapter 7? Stephen gives a recounting of how Israel's rejected all the prophets, and then Jesus. Remember what they do to him? They stone him. Well, that's, that's going to come for Jesus as well on a cross. Not stoning, but crucifixion. But it's not Jesus' time yet. So verse 30. But passing through their midst, he went away. I don't know. I don't know how it happened. All the weird videos that they're like, well, and Jesus is like, or whatever, you know. I don't know how it happened. Be gone, you know, Red Sea parting. I don't know how it worked. They dragged Jesus out there, and he's like, no, it's not time. I, I don't know. I don't know. But what it does show is that he is under God's sovereign care. The Father is protecting him here. Jesus is going to do what he came to do. But then, when it is his time, he will be taken to another hill. And there, he will be put to death by people who hate the fact that he will call out their sin. And they will say, we have no king but Caesar. 
because he wanted to reign over them and in them. Well, verse 31, he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. Capernaum will become a bit of a hub for Jesus. He will come and go from there often. Now, Jesus' words possessed authority. And now what we're going to do in our second point is we're going to see that Jesus is going to prove his authority. This one's much briefer than the second one because there's going to be so much like it in the rest of the gospel. Before I move on, though, I, I, I do want to just say, because I don't know if I'm going to say it later. Delroy Baptist, like, I think we have a real shot to be a light in a dark day. The gospel is liberating. The church is intended to be a place where racism and sexism and every other ism is just dead. Where we're honest about our prejudices and we confess them as sin. And we ask one another for help and forgiveness and patience. So I want to, I want to, com- I just want to encourage you and challenge you to be very mindful of the opportunity that we have as Christians right now in our day, and particularly in this place where God's put us. There's nothing out there that's unifying people right now except anger and irritation and anxiety. But this is where the gospel can set us apart as distinctly different of a people who have so many different backgrounds and convictions and things that they feel strongly about. Yet, on Sunday... And through the rest of the week, they can give one another the benefit of the doubt. They can speak kind words to one another. When they're confused and hurt, they'll go sit with one another and talk about it and pray and cry together. God uses that to build you up and to make his name magnified in the nation and among the nations. And I think we have a real chance for that. So pray to that end work to that end. If you have questions about what that looks like, elders would be happy to help you think through it. So Jesus is proclaiming that his kingdom is at hand. He is the life-giving Messiah. And now what he's going to do is he is going to prove his authority as king. He's going to prove his authority as as king. Jesus' ministry, this is point number two, Jesus proves his authority as king. Jesus' ministry is marked by his teaching and also his, his performing of miracles. And, and, and the rest of the chapter shows these two miracles. He's going to show he has power over demons and power over disease. And in the Gospels, there's about 37 miracles that are recorded. But John chapter 21 tells us that if, if all the miracles that Jesus did were recorded, all the books in the world couldn't contain them. So in glory, we'll get to see. Now, why does Jesus do all these miracles? Well, if you look over at chapter 5, verse 24, this is part of our text for next week. I just want to show you this, this one verse. He's healing a paralytic here, and he said that this man's sins are forgiven, and the religious leaders are getting mad at him. And he says, verse 23 of chapter 5, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, 
or to say, rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who is paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. You see, Jesus does miracles not to entertain us and not to impress us, but to convince us that he has the authority to say what he's saying. Now, let's look briefly at just these two miracles here. The first is that Jesus casts out a demon, and the second is that Jesus uh, cures a disease. So Jesus casts out a demon here in verses 33 through 37. Um, Verse 33, In the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. As you read through the Bible, you you know that there is a very real, unseen world. where, Where there are spiritual realities. There is God who is the eternal spirit. He created spirit beings, known as angels. Some of those angels rebelled. We'll do more on that another time. Chief among them is Satan, the devil, Lucifer. He's their leader. We saw Jesus take him on in chapter 4. But then there's all these other demons, these mini-me demons. And they're always seeking to do harm to people. They hate image bearers. Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and his minions do the same. They come to oppress and afflict and tempt and oppose all good things. But I just want you to notice here that they know who Jesus is. Did you catch that? Look at that. They they know that Jesus, you are the Holy One of God. Some sense they know who he is and that he has authority and that he has a plan to destroy them. They know all that kind of stuff, which I just want to point out that just believing in God, meaning the fact that he's there, is not enough. The book of James says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. I forget which famous pastor it was, one of the old, old dead guys. He said that atheism is, is a sin that not even the devils will fall into. The, the, the demons even know that there's a, a God, but, but that, is, that is not enough. There must be a submission to this God through faith. Well, somehow one of these unclean spirits comes upon and controls this man who's in the synagogue. More on, on, on that later. I'll probably do a whole message on um, exorcism and all that kind of stuff. That'll be interesting, won't it? But here Jesus confronts this demon, verse 35. Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. So Jesus confronts the demon. He calls evil into submission. He shows he has authority over it. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went into every place in the surrounding region. Which you would imagine, anytime you see a guy make a demon tap out and cry for his mama, like, you're like, wow, you will not believe what I saw today, right? Well, this is what Jesus does. And he does this not just because he hates demons, which he does, and not just to impress everybody, which he's not trying to do, but to prove to everybody that he has authority 
over evil. It's under his thumb. Well, then verse 38 and 39, Jesus uh, uh, cures a disease. Verse 38, he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon. This is Simon Peter, uh, one of the apostles, his house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. Just note there that the first pope was married. Just about. Anyway, um, just, just an observation. Um, they appealed to him on her behalf, and he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. So they left the synagogue, and then they go to Peter's home, where Peter's wife's mother is, is sick, and it's with a dangerous kind of fever. Which I think just point out here, notice that even families that have close relationship with Jesus come under the sorrow of sickness. A lot of people lie about that. Which, also note here that Jesus is sovereign over the sickness. He rebukes it. Boom, she stands up. She's like, let's, let's eat. And she just starts serving. Jesus is sovereign over sickness. There's nothing that comes in or out of our life that he is not in complete control over. Which, just a little exhortation here. Whenever you're sick, is your first thought to pray or to take a pill? Pastor is not preaching against using medication. Pastor is simply asking a question as to whether you pray about sickness. If you've ever traveled to other parts of the world where you don't have the types of medical care that we have, you see Christians, the first thing you do when someone gets sick is you just pray and you ask God for help. Just a thought. Verse 40. Now, when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick, various diseases, brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them, and he healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. Notice he's not going to allow the demons to do any evangelism for him here. Also notice here, do you see how Jesus healed people? He put his hands on them. He doesn't always do this, and he doesn't have to do this, but often he does this. He is a Savior who comes near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. He draws near and touches those who, for so long, people have not wanted to touch. He's that kind of Savior. Well, Verse 42, And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him, and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the gospel of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Jesus told them earlier, I am the Messiah, I am ushering in the kingdom of God, and now that I've made that known, My purpose in being here is to proclaim the kingdom of God is at hand. So you need to repent and get ready. And this is what Jesus' whole purpose for coming was. To bring in, to usher in the kingdom of God. And to rescue people from sin. This is what he says all through the Gospel of Luke. Luke 19.10 The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Chapter 5.32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And here, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. 
this is the purpose that I was sent for. Jesus came to proclaim the good news that he is the king who has all authority over evil, over death, over sickness, over sorrow, over oppression, over world leaders. That he would in his mercy come and be among it all to die for sinners and rise from the dead and then take his bride to be with him. But between now and then, that day when we go to be with him, we now, as God's people, have the hope that Jesus is king. And we need not be tossed to and fro by the fears of our day. But rather, we are to be about what he was about. We now have been sent on this purpose to proclaim the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, believe, trust. The king is coming. Pray with me.